Bill always said you're one of the best ladies he ever saw with an edged weapon. Fuck you, bitch. I know he didn't qualify that shit. So you can just kiss my motherfucking ass, Black Mamba. Black Mamba. I should have been motherfucking Black Mamba. Weapon of choice? If you want to stick with your butcher knife, that's fine with me. Very funny, bitch. Hi, and welcome to episode 105 of Do You Expect Us to Talk? I am your host, Becca, and as always, joined by Dave and Chris. How are you guys doing? Konnichiwa! Good evening, folks. But she can say Ohio. Konnichiwa. Ohio. What? What's Chicago? Hi, <laughs> <laughs> in the middle and round at both ends. All right, fair enough. That describes me perfectly. Um, <laughs> Isn't that a Bugs Bunny joke? Unless, unless Always you, high in a big round at both ends. Unless you're meeting someone called O, in which case you're going, Oh, hi, O. He's <laughs> like, Oh, hi, O. <laughs> no, I thought, well, there's. That's my lame attempt to try and learn Japanese off TV. So I figure as we go to Japan for this um, this episode of the podcast for this Fuck film. Fucking hell, I, I thought we were still in England. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. I don't remember going on the plane. Chris. Noodles. <laughs> Just eating some, you know. Oodles of noodles. Oodles of noodles. Yeah. But anyway, I hope I haven't offended anybody. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> hope, I hope you have. School. I hope you have, Becca. Anyway, as you might have guessed, at last we finally get to kill Bill. Part one. Yeah, I think uh, I think David Carradine's had quite the stay of execution off us. <laughs> I think he has. A month, that's quite generous. Mm. Anyway, deep breath for the cast list. As you know, we are reviewing Kill Bill, or volume one, starring <gasps> Emma Thurman, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, Sonny Chiba, Daryl Hannah, David Carradine, and Julie Dreyfus, and more. Um, original Original music by The Reza, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and released in 2003. Surely not. It, yeah. it is, it's 15 years ago nearly. Bloody hell, bloody hell. Now, I remember right. going to see this, um, actually 2003 is the year I started university, so that's how old I feel. Oh. Yeah, I saw it at uni as well, well, college. But yeah, no, that was pretty much <laughs> it. Yeah, I made mean, <laughs> Yeah, Chris did so well at college. 13 years later, university started. <laughs> but now he's on a true vocation. Uh, they, they, were all, they were all queuing up for him. <laughs> I, I, was, yeah, I, was, I was just like on a massive holiday. I thought I'd take a massive 13 <laughs> year gap. <laughs> yeah, yeah Chris, Chris didn't have a year out. He had kind of like an epoch out. <laughs> and, and, and a generation out. Like. <laughs> what did you do between now and then? Mm? Got old. Yeah. Oh, yeah, apart from age 13 years. <laughs> Yeah, trained to be Batman. Well, oh, you yeah, know, Batman, yeah, yeah, you have to sort of, you know, it's have to hit the right age, though. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become Batman, so I weighed it out, and then he went to thirteen. <laughs> that moment, he looked in the mirror and he saw a little bit of sort of grey hair on his temples. He thought, "It's time." <laughs> it's time. <laughs> mm. And then I realised, shit, I really should have like, you know, got in shape and shit. Maybe invested in some fight crime fighting stuff. I, I don't know. Wait, you, you got a bat meringue. 
You, you, you did yourself a pie ready for it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sugar in that. <laughs> Plenty of energy from all the sugar. <laughs> that set me off now. Um, but no, that's that's my story about being introduced to Kill Bill. Um, going well, on you went to see it? Uni. Yeah, yeah I went to see it the year I started university. No, just a bunch of friends. I think we... Was it a midnight screening? I think it might have been midnight screening. Um... At this tiny little two-screen cinema in Winchester, um, was converted church, and very lovely it is too. Um, yes, when I went to see that, there was just like the most amazing film of that year. Um, yeah, that's that's my pervading memory of it. Not very exciting, but there it is. That's fun, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Not very exciting. Well, I was watching it fairly recently. I was about to say earlier. That's bollocks. We've delayed this for ages, so I watched it a while ago now. But um, I was just reminded that, and trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, about five years ago, around now, my marriage broke up, right? I'd have been married 10 years, like a couple of weeks ago, if, if I'd still been with her. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that, like, I, I'm going to set the bar higher next time. If I ever marry again, I'm definitely going to pick a woman I like. Right. <laughs> wow. nice. Whoa. That, that's like that, Dave, come on, don't be so picky. Come on. Marry old any old woman. And if I can find one that likes me too. Disco, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, right, but about a week before it ended, and it was her choice, right? I mean it was her choice, but once I got over it, because you only ever miss things that you don't want when you're about to lose them. Um so for like a few weeks, I was like, fuck me, I can't believe this is ending shit. But like, as I look back on it, like totally the right decision. We should never, ever have fucking married each other. It was a terrible idea. But about a week before we split, and this might be the clue that it wasn't a working marriage, because I lived in Devon and she was about to go back to her job in Newcastle. Oh. That's possibly a sign you're not a match made in heaven that you spend no. <laughs> 460 miles apart. But anyway, we went to see, uh, we're, sorry, we didn't go see anything. We went to uh, an Italian restaurant, one of these chains. We went to like Prezzo or something like that. And we were sat there waiting for our meal. And I just remember, and I didn't really clock it at the time. I thought about this like a few weeks afterwards when I was over what had happened. Um, I was looking at her. And I was just thinking, where did the magic go? Now, when I say where did the magic go, when I think back, there fucking wasn't any. But there must have been like a period where we were like keen enough each on each other to like think about marriage and shit like that. But I'm sat there and I literally was struggling to remember why we were together. And I was just sat there thinking this used to be better than this. Nothing stronger than that. And I bring that up because that's exactly the way I think about Kill Bill 1 now. Um, because this was a film I went to see. Um, I was really excited to see it because Tarantino hadn't done anything for about six years. Five years in this country, about five and a half. Um, and I was blown away by it to the degree that a, a friend of mine the next day was going to go and see a double bill. And he said, um, I'm going to go and see uh, Kill Bill and The Matrix Revolutions. And I just said to him, swap those two. Whatever you do, see Kill Bill Volume 1 second, because you're going to come out in a much, much better mood. Because I'd seen, like, Matrix Revolutions 
not that long before, and it really wasn't good. That was a terrible film. Um, and so I, I watch Kill Bill now, and I'm thinking back to a time like a beautiful relationship where I ran through a meadow holding my copy of the Kill Bill Volume <laughs> 1 DVD. Running in slow motion. Yeah, I used to be really in love with this film, and I still think it's a really good film, but I can't access the way I used to feel about it. And it kind of upsets me that when I think about, I've been back in my hometown, I've just moved out of it actually, but I've been back in the West Country about 16 years now. And there are about four or five films that have stood out as absolutely blowing me away in that time. Um, They're not always films I, I always feel that way about years later but at the time they definitely did it for me i think about um return of the king which i now actually think is probably the weakest of the um lord of the rings films but at the time it was the one where i finally got it i went to see fellowship thought it was all right went to see um uh, two towers was a little bit bored went to see the third one and it's like oh i got it i've got it fucking hell i've got it this is brilliant um I feel that way about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I got that way a little bit over Slumdog Billionaire, which I knew at the time I would never see again. And I don't know why, but I don't ever want to see that film again. But it blew me away at the time. But chief amongst them is Kill Bill Volume 1. Of all of my years of cinema going, it was the one film that just blew me away so incredibly that I just thought I'd never tire of watching it on the big screen. I thought as soon as I got it on on home release, I'd watch it constantly. And I sort of did for a while. Now, I think part of the problem is I don't love Kill Bill 2 that much. And I think that probably has hurt this film. But when I watch it now, it feels like a film that's almost going through the motions. It feels like a film that's lots of cool references, lots of cool shots, lots of iconic imagery. And it's really good, but I can't love it. And I don't know why. And I'm wondering if we can kind of access that when we talk about it. What about you guys? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I suppose I've been a bit up and down. It just not in a... Not in a really negative sense. I've always enjoyed it. I mean, when it came out, I mean, yeah, I, it was just it was just such a jolt of fun. I think because of um, well, the first cinematic Tarantino as well, because uh, he's been it, it, it just seemed like such a long time uh, since he'd been away. So for him to like come back with something that was just so pop culture heavy and just like just just and just like just outright fun and just sort of really sort of pure just Tarantino. Uh, in, in just in visual flair and style, it was just it was it it, it just popped on the screen. So yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Um, and then, and then as you know, then as times went on, you know, it's more particularly with the the fact that it's volume one, volume two. I just felt like okay, it it's good, but I just think you have done too much. I mean, I would have maybe possibly would have preferred if you'd stuck with like the 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 one film and or maybe like make it like a big revenge epic uh because i'm not quite sure how these two films stylistically gel together as one narrative it just feels a little you know it doesn't it just seems like two completely different things um so i've always had this sort of uh notion that this was the start where tarantino started to lose himself despite him still being really entertaining as, as a filmmaker 
So I held that opinion until recently, until I watched it again, and I just really, really loved it. It just, it just like, yeah, I just everything, everything about it just popped to me. Thought this is great. Uh, I think the cast is great across the board. And it is Uma Thurman's uh, iconic role. It's the one she will be remembered for. Um, it, it's easy to say that now. Now time has actually passed. Um, but it isn't obvious when you're doing what was at the time. Yeah, and it grew to more than this, but it was planned to be kind of like a 55 million pound B movie or 55 million dollar yeah. B movie. It and it actually ended up actually it was less than that. I'm looking at it now. The budget's only 30 million. That really surprises me. I must have got my figures wrong on that actually. Um, you know, it, had she never made this film, she'd probably be remembered for. Dangerous Liaisons? Possibly. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, this, this really kind of brought Uma Thurman back into the public eye, didn't it, really? I mean, mm. maybe Pulp Fiction. I mean, I don't know, maybe not. Did, I mean, tomorrow, so what was it like? Uh, that romantic comedy she did? I can't remember. The Muscle of Dogs or something. Um, oh, yeah, that oh, was the a truth random. about Cats and Dogs. Truth about Cats and Dogs. Yeah, yeah oh, that's, that's the one. Um, but, yeah, I just don't. Probably, probably would be Pulp Fiction, ironically enough. That would have been like. Her iconic yeah, image. I don't know why that had skipped my mind, but yeah. Uh, uh, even but even then, she's a very small part of that film. She hadn't really taken a film by the balls, had she? No, <laughs> so to speak. But here, I mean, she. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think she's absolutely great in this. Uh, also, uh, Lucy Liu, I, I think is just really, really great. You know, she. It's it's odd that you have um, a a villain who just. Who just comes everything you want from a villain, but also you you start off having a bit of sympathy. You can understand exactly where who this character is and where she's come from and how she is where she is, and you still have these kind of like full picture in in uh, in this like uh, another under two hour film, which you rarely get these days or at all. So I I I, I thought it was just generally really satisfying, and when I watched it, I watched volume two um straight off the bat i had really good feeling of it yeah i i haven't done that i've avoided it i'm re- I, you know i'm gonna get ready with that for next week um volume two i think did affect it because it, it, this film came out in october it came out really near my birthday because my birthday is the 11th of october and i got a feeling it came out just afterwards i'm looking now and it actually says the 10th but i think that might be u.s release i think we may have got it a week later but I, I watched it and was blown away by it. And we were told Kill Bill Volume 2 would be February. And we ended up getting Volume 2 in like May or something like that. He was constantly struggling over the soundtrack to that film. That was the, the main reason for the delay, that he couldn't get the soundtrack as he wanted it. And um, I was really looking forward to it. And the other thing is in the interim, and we'll talk about this more next week, I read the script to 2. And some of the best bits of the script didn't make it to the screen. And it felt like a little bit like creative paralysis. The way she ends up finishing off um, Killing Bill is not quite what was in the original script. And the original script was much more interesting, whereas the film is just like, let's just finish this and go home. Um, I, I thought I thought Kill Bill Volume 2 was the first time Tarantino tried to do Tarantino's dialogue and almost failed. Um, and when you think his next film after that was Death Proof, which was the second example of that, I really wondered if he was finished a- around that time. Um, 
this film absolutely blew me away at the time. I still think it's got a great score or great soundtrack. I still think it's got a lot of iconic imagery. But when I watch it, I'm remembering loving it rather than actually loving it. Yeah. I yeah I I I, I can I can see how you feel about that. For me, it was just it was just a little bit of like oh, you know what I, it, it was more of a moment of generally really appreciating what was actually on feet and 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 when you kind of analyse it in your head, you think yeah you know what everything's kind of working here. Every, every scene's really well done. I, I, I'm really kind of enjoying it. I mean, you pick things here and there with it. Think oh, well, I would like to see a bit more of that or a bit less of this. Or maybe they could have done that differently, just here and there. But they're kind of nitpicks. A lot, most of the time, you're thinking, yeah, this is generally really good. Uh, Becca, what do you think? Um, yeah, just to pick up on on Dave's point, um, I, I did kind of on seeing this for the first time. It, it, on seeing this film the first time around, it did literally blow me away. I was like, oh, you know, I literally hadn't seen anything like it um, in terms of like a Western spin on um, Asian kung fu movies. Um, coming out of like China and Japan, and definitely with a Tarantino twist as well. Um, sort of, you know, sound great, looked great, dialogue quite snappy. Um, loved the characters, um, inclusion of things like five, six, seven, eight, um, and sort of like Crazy Eight, for example, and just kind of a twist on the Jackie Jackson movies as well. But again, I would agree that um, Kill Bill Volume Two perhaps didn't quite live up to the hype for me. Um, again, I've not seen that since release, so I'm looking forward oh, really? to seeing it again and, and, and reassessing. Um, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a long, long time. <laughs> but um, yeah, in terms of this film, guys, I, you know, so I, I did remember kind of loving it and watching it again. I kind of it went on a little bit, but um, reading more about the film, I can kind of, and obviously, thirteen years since, because um, like the last probably, but nearly a decade now. I don't know why, but I've sort of become more interested in sort of like in Japan and Tokusatsu movies, for example. Um, I can't pronounce. And trying to learn a bit of Japanese off NHK again, that's rubbish. Um, but and just kind of, you know, watching anime and all the kind of action movies and that as well. So I can kind of, I can appreciate it a little bit more. Um, no, so I seem to love, love it back then. I kind of enjoyed it again now. Um, perhaps I went off a little bit too long. Um, and obviously now having seen um, that film that we watched from Dust Dawn, um, I can appreciate the earlier scenes more as well um, and the callbacks to that character. Um, which is, you know, which kind of adds to a richer experience, really. But I'm looking forward to uh, to dissecting this and discussing the film in a sequential fashion. Okay. Well, you know, just before we do that, I just also want to pick up. I think one of the things that makes the film is the the choices of music. I think yes. I think it's generally really. We are going to talk about that as we go through because almost everything on this score or soundtrack i keep saying score when i mean soundtrack and vice versa mm-hmm. but almost everything on this soundtrack comes from somewhere else yeah there's no kind uh, of and real... they, they aren't the most obvious places either um, like you, you wouldn't think like some of the some of the things that we get are like from ironside and you wouldn't wouldn't really expect terrified. that i was um, terrified <laughs> no, no but i mean we, i'm thinking about um all the stuff that plays over the anime feels absolutely suited to like an eastern film and yet it comes yeah it comes from it comes from the grand duel which is a, a spaghetti western with lee van cleef yeah exactly but there are you know, there are kind of sorry to cut you up chris there are like western element not western elements but elements of the western genre in this as well um but it's good because you you've got a real kind of smashing together of, of east and west and there's even a bit of um there's even a bit of um uh black exploitation 
because mm. you've got you've got um, Isaac Hayes score from Run Fay Run on it. Yeah, so you got all kind of genre mashing going on here. Yeah, so I mean, there's some really interesting stuff about this. I I don't mean to be negative on it. It's a film I still really enjoy, but it's a film that years on I watch and I realise about three quarters of the way through the film I don't really care about any of the characters. And we're following on from Jackie Brown, where I really cared about the characters, and we're two we're two films away from um, Inglorious Bastards, where I really cared about sort of the, some of the characters in that film as well. So I really it's a film cared that, for the Nazis. I really wanted to see them. <laughs> uh, just they get a bad rep. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I do, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks' time, but. I still think it's superior Tarantino and it, it probably is top four. But when it's a film that just used to make me, I, I almost felt like crying. It was so good. When I watch it now and I'm vaguely underwhelmed, that is quite a journey to have with a film. Sometimes, you know, when a film just loses its shape because you've seen it so many times. it's not. There is that because I watched it to death. I mean, I really did. Mm. And, uh, there, yeah, there, there is that kind of thing where you just thought, okay you know it inside out and it becomes less of a, a joy and sometimes it's you, you might need to sort of just take a break from it to but then i don't know how well last time you saw it but um so yeah okay well should we just dig straight into it then yeah let's go for it okay so we start off with the uh, nazi snatcher don't don't we we do um we start off with um i can't a, remember it, it, what what made me smile is you got the Miramax logo and then you got um, her breathing quite heavily and I don't mean that in any dodgy way she doesn't sound sexual or anything she sounds hurt which she is yeah, she's been beat up um, and you get uh, Revenge is a dish best served cold old Klingon proverb, Klingon proverb. which is lovely that. given that like people go does Tarantino really get Trek well fifteen years ago he was fucking referencing it so he's clearly. <laughs> He is actually—he's quite a big Trek fan, isn't he? He is. A, he's an original series fan, mm. um, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and it and it cuts into um, the voice of David Carradine. We're going to talk about the casting of David Carradine a little bit later on because he's not the first choice, and the first choice excites me. I wish it had been the first choice, but we'll come to that a little later. He's he a legend in that kind of genre cinema, though, isn't he? So he kind of is, but he's a very B movie legend. Whereas the original choice was a was an A lister. Mm. Um, it's not too but, sad for B movies, though. Sorry to keep he, interjecting. That's fine. No, he was talking. To, he talks to her about um, what is it? He says something like, um, "This is me at my most masochistic." You, yeah. you, you think me sadistic, and as he's about to shoot her in panic, she says, "Bill, it's your baby," um, and he just—you actually see the blood come out of her head where he shoots her. And then it cuts to Bang Bang by Nancy Sinatra. And I've always thought Nancy Sinatra's, ever since You Only Live Twice, has a wonderful voice. Mm, no, it's amazing. Because there was a kind of like a remix version of it that, that stuck at the charts for forever and ever afterwards. Yeah, it always annoyed me that. that, that yeah. Sort of, I thought, no, the, the actual thing's better. <laughs> yeah, I, is, I, I love the original song, but just like, I the remix of it. I had the same with Jackson like, 5, I Want You Back. There was a remix about 30 years ago that fucked with it. And it's like, leave it as it is. Touch it. Um, it's like I, I know what'll sound better. We'll, we'll just skip the last sort of bit, bit of the phrasing over and over again. It's like oh. she's got a lovely voice, and what I love about the song is it all sounds "My Baby Shot Me Down," but it's about two kids playing. Mm. Yeah, literally. Um, but yeah, which I love. But obviously, it, it just goes through a very gentle set of credits, 
Um, and when it comes out the other side, you get the sound of what sounds like, I don't know, an ice cream truck or something like that. And it is basically to signal we're in suburbia. Mm. And it's chapter one, two. And what it means, <laughs> what that means is that it's number two on her list. Which yeah, we, we, don't, we don't follow it in numerical order, do we? It's all kind of chopped up and broken up. And which we haven't been introduced to yet. And it's, again, this Tarantino ability to accept that real life doesn't necessarily put things in the right order. You can no. acknowledge that and put it in the right order. Because it, it does make sense for this film to build to House of the Blue Leaves. I wonder if this point, had he kind of reached peak Tarantino at this point then, in terms of how he liked to order his films and, um, you know, break up his work into lots of different sections, but I don't know. I, I just like the idea that um, you don't have to pretend. You, you can write a story that has, to use that old phrase, for a similitude in that you put everything in the order life would probably have it um but you can rearrange it in your story though that you understand that accept that but put it in an order that's more cinematic you can't finish this film without going to see Vanita Green no no it, it would just be like an undersell really wouldn't it well, it would be after House of the Blue Leaves, yeah. which we're going to talk yeah. to a lot later, because um, that's one of his greatest cinematic experiences. We don't know anything yet. We just know that she wants revenge. Um, so she turns up in suburbia to the house of a lady, and there's voiceover to explain this, to a lady called Vanita Green, who was known as... Is it Copperhead? Or Copperhead, yeah. yeah. I think Cottonmouth was actually um, Cop- yeah. Lucy Lou. Um, and basically, she goes in, and the minute the doors open, you get the Ironside sting, which is basically this film's shorthand for she's seen the red mists. Yeah. And, you, and you get yeah. a flashback to... I mean, what are they, what this film does quite cleverly, it's, uh, it's just a subtle ways of, like, yeah, you see the red mist, but you also see, like, a clip of her getting the shit kicked out of her. So, you've already, so you see the, the bit at the beginning where she gets shot, you go, okay, well, she's dressed as a bride there, so... That's part and if of you it. know what you're looking for, she's clearly pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, and so you see the and you see like her getting beaten up by by the lady she's just seen, and you know, and like her standing over. They're all her. kind of looking up. They're all looking after. Yeah. Um, looking after, looking over her, aren't they? Yeah. So, 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 it, so without even having to explain anything, you kind of go, "Well, I, I kind of know." Oh god, we saw her at the start being shot. Yeah. I think we saw a veil on her. I wouldn't swear to that. Maybe, prob- maybe like a top of her head, but yeah. We, it, yeah, we probably, covered. we may have picked, no, but on her head. Yeah, we yeah. may have picked up she's pregnant and we've picked up something has happened. We know she was shot, so it has some relation to that. And she basically goes in and it's a st- full-on knife fight straight away. Yeah. And, and, it, and, again, fight. and again, it's like um, Tarantino proving like, yeah, I can do action. You know, it's a really well choreographed fight scene and it's, it, it shot as well as any other fight um, action scene um, you can think of. You, of this type, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know exactly where everyone is. It's not cut to shit. You can you see it, it looks like a brutal fight. Um, it's really, really nicely handled. This is where Tarantino's grounding in cinema history is helpful because this era, I mean, we're a few months away from the Bourne supremacy. We're a few months away from everything being shaped the camera around to yeah. convey action. Yeah, And, and I, I honestly think, as, I think that Bourne Supreme will cover Bourne one day. And I, I honestly think 
as good as the Bourne supremacy is, and and certainly three of the main four Bourne films are very good. Um, but I th- I think of it as quite a dark period in cinema history now, and and typically, as always, the Bond films felt the need to copy it with Quantum of Solace. Mm, shaky cam galore. And I don't I don't think it's anything that's going to age well. The idea of like we need to convey com- kineticism, so let's shake it around. Uh, Tarantino doesn't do that, and I really love that he he didn't do that. Tarantino takes. He, you know, he dances to his own tune. I mean, if you think this era as well, we're about to go into the shaky cam era. We're coming off the back of the sort of um, desaturated Saving Private Ryan era, mm-hmm. where everything needed three quarters of the colour taken out of it. You know, it was like the tones of blue I or mean, grey. Or... I know, you think of stuff like, um, oh, what was it called? Black Hawk Down? Yeah, there's all kind of even, colour. Even great filmmakers like Ridley doing it everything is from that era has dated so badly well i remember that era just being like the era of really shitty action but like really shitty like films with like cgi that really shouldn't really be they were pushing cgi too much and it just doesn't age well at all it just it doesn't very like i mean the last film from that era that i really think pushed it way beyond where it was ready to go was war of the worlds yeah. The the the, Tar- uh, the Tarantino the Spielberg War of the World, Worlds film with Tom Cruise. There are bits where they're being like hunted and and it just looks so like rubbery and shiny. Um, so I like that Kill Bill is dated so much better. There's a timeless quality to his films. But yeah, it's a knife fight until until you hear the school bus pull up outside. Yeah, I'd, I'd love this. Like, there's a good element of humor. You get a full on knife fight between between these two, um, pretty even handed, and then just without even saying a word, you can read the expressions on each of the character's face of like of like, come on, don't fucking do this in front of the kid now. And there's kind of like a little, you know, it's like a silent like conversation almost you just sort of see them and go yeah all right then <laughs> and they both pull up tarantino is probably the best um i can think of and, it, and it's not something anyone ever talks about i hinted at it in jackie brown he's probably the best i've ever seen since sergio leone for finding nuance in people's faces mm. uh, you know he did it with max cherry in the last film and he does it here he doesn't do it in the same way either he's not copying um sergio leone by any means but he, he just knows what he wants from his actors, and, and he hires people that can do it. He obviously saw Batman yeah. and Robin and thought, Viva Carey Fox. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we, we saw Independence Day for that. <laughs> that. That woman can carry a film, and then you're like, oh, man, actually, no, you're, you're dead in the first scene. <laughs> but it's all the passage of time as well, because we, we've really, you know, she's been asleep four and a half years. Yeah. And, um, no, I'm not sure that the the child is four years though. The the she looks the a little older to me. Yeah, it just yeah, seems... seven or eight. No, maybe not. I don't know. And, 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 and is... it would imply that she was pregnant more or less straight afterwards, and seems to have no problem of settling down away from. Do you know? It just it just buys a little bit. Of, I'm not sure. It about slightly that. oversells, but it sells the passage of time. Yeah. Yeah. But. Everyone has moved on, and she's woken up feeling the way she did on day one. Yeah. Um, and no one would have expected this. No one expected her to survive. Um, but, of course, yeah, Nikki comes in, the little girl, 
Um, and they claim the dog has run around. I mean, they're caked in blood. <laughs> Acting a stuff. damn fool. <laughs> the dog did it. Yeah. And then they go into the kitchen. She goes to fix her some cereal. And you get a bit of background. Yeah. But they're all kind of named after snakes as code names. And, of course, she says, I should be named Black Mumba. Yeah, because she's black. <laughs> yeah. That makes that makes some kind of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. See, that's, that's another thing lost about this film as well. Because, um, like, well, in the second film, I think... Uh, again, I literally haven't seen it upon, um, upon release, so I I haven't seen it since, so I might be wrong. But obviously the big thing was about, well, how about Nakia coming back and telling her side of the story and things like that? But you, you, don't, kind of, you, you don't see her again. It's too far ahead. I mean, she's exactly. a child at this point. I think, that, um, that, I think that with Tarantino, like Bill Bill always played the idea if they ever did, he would do it like with the time. So um, yeah. what, watching this now... Um, when I did, I kind of thought, you know what? I won't be surprised if Volume Three would be his swan song. Yeah. What, what he ends with. Well, yeah, because you know, I think it plays quite nice. It, you know, the, that whole idea of of the of, of revenge kind of like coming back at you. You know, it's like mm. she has to have revenge on this person regardless, and yet the consequence for that, you know, you know, might mean her own demise later on. You know what I mean? So and 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 her and that demise could is justified to extent to an extent because, well, this kid just witnessed someone kill a mother in front of her. So it's. Yeah. I it's, think a lot of that will depend, Chris, as a po- as a possibility on what he does with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has now been named yeah. his ninth film. Um, they were originally going to call it Elder Skelter, which I'd have loved, but there you go. Elder Skelter. I know. That would have been interesting. That's what I wanted to call it. But when you think about um, Inglorious Bastards, there's an alternate history where Hitler is shot in 1944. And when he he was interviewed about it, he said, well, I thought about it. And I was like, do I change history? And he went, well, actually, my history is an alternate history where the bastards exist. They, They didn't exist in the real timeline. So that justifies me killing Hitler earlier. And I've heard rumors, and it's only rumors, because he, he's talk. There's talk of Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate, uh-huh. and the rumor is, in this timeline, she doesn't die, oh. and she goes on like a revenge against the Manson lot. Now that might prove this will date the show really badly, because in about eighteen months' time, this film will be released, and that may not be true. But if he if he does kind of a revenge film with a female protagonist as his ninth film. A, he probably won't do it as his 10th film as well. And B, he's probably using some of the ideas he might have thought of for Kill Bill 3. So I doubt it'll ever happen now. Possibly. Well, I've not heard that before, so that could be interesting. Possibly. I mean, tr- truth is, you, you never know what Tarantino is going to do. He might just turn around and say, no, no, I'm going to do 12. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know or, or you might do like Star Trek and go like, yeah, but that doesn't count as one of my main or something. He'll be like, oh, I don't know. There's a little bit of looseness to Tarantino, so I, 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 who knows? And plus, who knows what he has in mind for Volume Three? Anyway, he might do something completely different if he does. I'm Kirk, and I'm here to twerk. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, He's practicing his fucking thrust <laughs> to get ready. Um, so it, it's an okay film. I mean, it, it really is an okay sequence, but it obviously ends with her throwing a knife through Vanita Green, and that's Vanita Green dead. I, 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 don't, I don't quite buy the fact that she that bad a shot from that distance. That just seems like, oh, okay, that's a bit... I know. <laughs> it, it's a bit like Greedo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she puts the knife through her and drives the off... The serial did lodge it all, yeah. <laughs> the, 
We charged off the pussy wagon, which has. Does that make a serial killer? Oh no! <laughs> oh yeah, nice. I'll get my coat. Yeah, go on. Bye. <laughs> oh, so, um, Snap, just say, we've just said goodnight to Becca. So, Chris, let's carry on. Bye. Um, and then we get a cut back to her waking up from the coma, don't we? Uh, no, we get cut to uh, Texas Ranger McGraw. Of yeah. course. <laughs> Texas Ranger McGraw. Uh, Al McGraw. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, to technically, this week, because it's like um, Tarantino's movie universe, isn't it? The Kill Bill yeah. series. So yes, that, it is. So, would that mean that From Dust Till Dawn is in that same universe? Yes. They're all connected. Yes, but what I don't know whether it means is whether um, it's set before. I'm not quite sure because obviously Omegor dies in From Dust Till Dawn. Mm. But whether in a movie universe you take greater liberties, I don't know. But they obviously go to find the, the after. It's the aftermath of this shooting at a little chapel in El Paso, um, and they basically find her dead and start talking about what's happened. And it's just little stylistic things like their their footsteps. Her, him and his son are matched entirely as they walk along. Did you notice yeah. that? Yes, and as, as they drive, as they drive towards the chapel, you've got um, from the soundtrack, you've got um, that certain female by Charlie Feathers, mm-hmm. which is just like a real fifties track. There's no this, this this soundtrack coalesces so well, yet all of the individual spits don't don't go together. No, they're a bit kind of incongruous. It's aren't incredible. They? It's incredible how he's done that. It's not my favorite. I, I like last week's more, but. The the idea that you use that song and you go that just doesn't go with what we're gonna get. But really, yeah. really impressed. But it does cut forward to her waking up from that coma. Yeah, she like spits at her, <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, yeah, we have this. Uh, do do we get anything before that, or is it? Do we get into? I think we get. I think we get L Viper, L Driver in the middle, trying to like. Yes, kill that's it. it. Yes, yes. Now again, talking of soundtrack, this was bizarre because I was looking through the soundtrack, and it's a her whistling is a little bit called "Twisted Nerve" by Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann is best known as a longtime um, co-collaborator with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, his last score was "Taxi Driver." He died mm-hmm. soon after that. Um, but yeah, very, very, very um, distinctive score writer. Now, not only does Twisted Nerve sound nothing like him. That's going to be completely different. Is it? If you listen, listen to like the whole of the track on its own, you just think, really? But then you go and look it up, and it's off a film called Twisted Nerve. So I started reading about uh-huh. this film, and I've seen it. I, 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 I don't know when I saw it. I think I saw it as a teenager. And it's a Hugh Bennett film. The guy who played <laughs> Shelley on TV. So it's a British film. Slightly passed away. With like Hugh Bennett and Hayley Mills and all the rest of it about this guy sort of taking advantage of a damaged young girl. It's quite an uncomfortable film. And you think, how did, how did Bernard end up doing that? How did he end up doing that? And how did Tarantino pick that to go in this? But I remember the film as uncomfortable as it is being really, really good. I think it's, so, it's Bernard Herrmann, isn't it? And it's probably... One, probably one of his least known scores, I would say. I would have thought so. It's like a 1968-1969 film that hardly anyone's seen, and I just happened to have. We now, do have most... a lot of music from that era. Um, well, most of the music. stuff we're going to talk about tonight are on films I don't know. We'll talk about them as we go through, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen the films in question. Bizarrely, I've seen Twisted Nerve, but um, 
I just never cease to marvel at the guy's ability to put together completely unrelated things and they work. And I think a lot of it is he writes to music. So if he's in the same mood when he writes and he puts Bang Bang by Nazi Sinatra on and then he gets to... Um, and then he gets to that certain female and he's still in the same mood and then he gets the twisted nerve. The fact that they don't sound alike doesn't actually matter because he was in the same mood when he wrote all of that. Therefore, they'll go together. Yeah, it's kind of like he maps it in his own head. It's like he's like, well, that that piece of music suits the, the tone that I want for this scene or the, it, it matches that kind of atmosphere I want for this scene. And yeah. on paper, it's, it's, one, uh, it's one of the things I think, really? But because he's like kind of put it together in his own head, and I say probably like done it well, as he's writing it, it yeah. it somehow works. I mean, I think that's kind of like the thing with Tarantino. He's he's like a collector when it comes to music. He's kind of like he kind of, kind of picks up on homages, or you know, sort of like oh, I like that piece of music, so I want it. Like I can see that in here, um, and it's just. But part. they don't feel like skits. They don't no. feel like unrelated skits. No, I mean, I mean, like as I say, like some of the the music in later on I just think it's absolutely just fucking beautiful like and, and even though it's like where's that shit where's that from you know it's like it's borrowed stuff but it just still works it's it, you know it's 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 almost like celebrating the the music of the past and bringing it back in back into modern day which uh but of course she wakes up and finds she does she isn't carrying a child that's the last thing yeah. she remembers and, and, and you know it's like she like she wakes up and looks at her hands uh, yeah, t- uh, basically lifelines on her hands yeah. to see how she's aged. I, I don't know if that's a myth or not. I don't know if my hand looks different than it did last year. It's probably a myth, but it's storytelling shorthand because you know immediately what that means. She's yeah. looking yeah. to see how much time's gone by. And it possibly applies some sort of kind of mystical training warrior type sort of stuff, like mm. sort of so part parcel of that. So she's that like well, well trained, yeah. So um, and she's not long awake before she hears voices, yeah. and has to pretend to be. And it turns out the whole four years she's been being raped. Mm. I mean, she she hides initially just because she doesn't know where she is. She's like, shit, is am I in Bill's place? So she goes, oh shit, I'm I'm, I'm going to play, that. yeah. And then she, yeah, it turns out like, you know, this guy's just been basically pimping out, like, comatose bodies. Oh. To, to run, yeah. Um, Buck is his name. Um, it, you know what My it, name's Buck, and I like to do something quite dirty, it, actually. It's the Vaseline that sort of makes it gross. <laughs> it's mainly that the pot of Vaseline is filthy. Oh, it's sort wrong. of fingering at that after putting oh, it no. somewhere they shouldn't. Um, and come no. on, all, yeah. all, all you want, she's yeah. She's no. a spitter, so no punching her. And it's like, well, if you're there to do that sort at of thing... At least he's clean. You don't have much morality in the first place, do you, if you're there doing <laughs> that sort of thing? No, if you've been but the idea, you have to tell somebody not to punch them. Um, <laughs> this is horrible. I, I do it's remember... Just... I don't know what to think of it. Do you think it's a bit unnecessary? Yeah, of course, it's totally unnecessary. I mean, he was interviewed and he said, well, do you know what? I think somebody who looked like that in that situation, I bet that would happen. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I bet it fucking oh. wouldn't. Bloody hell. So hang on a minute, Chris. I'm, I, I'm going to take joking out of this, so I am not leading up to a joke, I promise you. Yeah. Chris, you are about to be a nurse, so you could easily be in somebody like that's position. Yeah. What Tarantino is saying 
that given enough people like you covering that shift over a number of years, someone would. And it's like, no, they fucking wouldn't. I don't think that's likely. No, it's it's not likely on the broad show. I mean, look, I think if I was to defend Tarantino in some way, and I haven't really read, read the context, he might be saying this kind of sh- evil shit does happen. Uh, now maybe yeah, but I actually heard him say, "I bet it would." Yeah, I mean, like maybe it's just like maybe that's what he means. It's just like, look, this kind of evil shit does it does happen as well. No, no getting away about it. Not saying like, oh, it happens in every hospital. Well, because that's just not true. Um, I imagine in some places in the world, or like the random dark corners, that it does happen to a degree. No, well, not not say this, but I don't know. But I think that's probably what he means. But yeah, but the implication though is a little bit like, okay, but do you really need it there? But anyway. No, I think it adds a degree of difficulty, but she's already been in a coma for four years. There's five, four or five people who want her dead and she's lost her daughter. I think that's probably enough. Do you think it's probably... It might be like an excuse for a bit of blood rage to, to wake up to. It's like, you wake up hospital, right... You usually have a bit of a, a revenge hit straight away. Now, there's no one really to inflict revenge upon, so let's let's create a character that has done something really horrible so we don't feel bad that he gets killed. Possibly. I think what it does play to is the killer in her. Yeah. That she's smart enough to wait, take revenge on the guy who's literally about to do it, get herself in a certain position, wait for Buck to come back, and then slash it as an Achilles tendon. That's actually that's actually kind of well thought through. Yeah. Because he's then pretty helpless and she works out how to get out of there and all the rest of it. So as as a way to show us her thinking, I think it's a very effective scene. I'm no shrinking violent. I, I can't pretend, oh, I'm offended by it because like you put anything in a film, it's up to you. But I do kind of sit there and just think, actually, the film would have been just fine without it. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one scene that you could have cut out and it wouldn't have, you know, it could have been I mean, she's got, to get to, she's got to get to a car. She's got to get out of there. You've got to have something. That gives you the I can see how that. that leads you down a path to this scene, but it also leads you to the whole argument that we're going to get to increasingly in future weeks that who is there to say to Quentin Tarantino, there's other ways to do this? Not necessarily the first thought into your fucking head. I mean, like, the odd, the odd thing for me is, like... For that whole scene, whole part, uh, the thing that I that I kind of think, oh, that I don't really like that bit. It's actually how the how the scene kind of like cuts the guy with the lip. I just it, it doesn't cut naturally. Kind of like he, she bites his lip and it, it cuts to black and it and it kind of goes back to her like as if like time's passed. Yeah. It just it just doesn't feel like a natural cut. And I think uh, Quentin, you're better filmmaker than that. I, you know, you could have done that better. Yeah, but, and there's sometimes paying there's sometimes paying homage to things, mm. and and I mean, and forgetting that most of the audience won't get your homages. The example I always think of is she gets out of there. She she can't walk, so she gets into a wheelchair and wheels herself to wherever this car that Buck's got is, because she sees he's got like a key ring with pussy wagon mm. written on it. <laughs> so she's looking for what vehicle that belongs could possibly to. be. Is it, isn't Fort- that kind of like Austin Powers style title? Fortunately, it's painted on, yeah, the Shaguar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> painting Shaguar. 
that the fun. third Austin Power films weren't great, but I loved the first ten minutes. Locating Shaguar. Locating Shaguar is brilliant. Uh, and it, and he's dad. We're gonna have to like, do him. It's so much great fun. Great Shag. Um, yeah. Shag now. Um, Shag Yeah. Um, but as she gets there, there's music playing. I think it may be from that Isaac Hayes bit of music, but it cuts really abruptly, and I think it cuts abruptly because the films that have influenced Quentin Tarantino have abrupt real changes. And it's like, well, who in the audience is going to get that if you're not us? Yeah. Uh, does it not cut abruptly when she stops, though? When she stops, and oh. well, she stops and looks and then looks at the keys yeah. and then it really cuts and it cuts to a scene of her getting into it. Yeah. It is a really awkward cut in the music and I think it's Tarantino's way of saying, you know, that it's the cut of reels and all the rest of it. And I just think it's okay. Um, yeah. But what's coming next is much, much better. The, the only thing I will pick up on, and like, you know, maybe it's like this is my, should we say, my expertise in that field. But how, like, surely his body would have been discovered at some point, and they, you know, he would have like. It's the fact that she's in the car for the next thirteen hours. Exactly. I'm sorry. It, it's a bit of a hard sell the fact that no one fucking knows, <laughs> or no one, or no one thought to look to like no one look at his car. With knows what car he drives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or where he tends to park. Or, or bother to just like check. It's like, oh, his keys are missing. Let's check if his car's there. You know, yeah. <laughs> it just... know. that is pretty poor. Having said that, it gives us an opportunity to see again her incredible resilience because she she does the thirteen hours of work to get her legs moving. But also, we get the backstory to um, Cottonmouth, don't we? Yes, uh, Oren. Oren Rishi. Oren Ishii. Oren Ishii. But not Oren. Oren Fishi. Well, you've got to take House of the Blue Leaves out of it, because that's a masterpiece of filmmaking. But if you take House of the Blue Leaves out of it, I think this might be my favourite bit of the film. Yeah, as I say, I must agree with you there. I think that's probably one of the best segments of film ever. Well, the other thing is, again, the music mix, because... In hindsight, you've you've got um, this anime sequence. Um, I'd be interested to see when we get to fun facts if Becca's done anything on this anime sequence because um, I don't. I know love it. I was blown it. away by it. I was like, kind right. of like Pete Ghibli. Obviously, it's not but, Ghibli, but it's in that but, stuff. But I was like, <gasps> anime. But the music mi- 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 matches it. <laughs> I mean, you've got her growing up. You've got this whole sequence of her family being like killed and all the rest of it and whimper coming out of her mouth and all the rest of it, which is extraordinarily good. And Tarantino would have directed all of that. Then you get to her as a teenager shooting someone through a car, which is totally like Deadshot from the Batman universe. Um, it's a cool visual, terms... isn't it? Well, it's it's very like there's a, there's a just between um, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. There was a straight to DVD thing called uh gotham night yeah and it was meant to be a load of like stories about batman from people who encountered him's perspective and it was meant to be like a soft bit between the two actually when you watch it now it's just a cash in it it doesn't bridge those two films at all really but there is a sequence in it called deadshot which is really really good and it's about the character deadshot um, mm. Shooting someone. It's really like this. It's a few years afterwards, actually, so it would have it's been influenced by this. Yeah, it's really, really like this. But the thing is, the music is the grand jewel, <laughs> right? When you listen to it by itself, it sounds totally suited to like this Eastern thing. But it's the grand jewel, which is a spaghetti western from the early 70s with Lee Van Cleef. Mm. 
And you think, I didn't think those two genres lined up like that. I mean, the, the, but like the music, there's there's different music uh, in this whole sequence that uses, and I I just totally get a Marconi vibe from it all. It just feels very much... Morricone. Morricone. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Not the telephone. Not Lemon Meringue. Not macaroni. No. Marconi and macaroni. Okay, so we're doing Christmas free and, 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 and Julio Macaroni. Uh, <laughs> I think we should do a Christmas free corner. It's Enrico Palazzo. We should do Christmas free corner. Sorry, that was. Um, oh, <laughs> that, was, that was the Naked Gun where um, uh, Frank Drebin sings the national anthem and clearly doesn't know it, and he sings the line. He sings the line at one point and bums in the air. But this just suits so well. And again, this is a this is a woman, a bit like um, the bride herself, who we yeah. don't know the name of at this point, has just grown up in massive um, um, uh, adversity. And actually, what I thought of, and I know it's a bit of an obscure reference, but I thought of obscure relative to this film. But I thought of um, Skyfall, where she's talking about how orphans make the best recruits and yeah. it's all and it's almost like bill has gone out and found the most damaged people he can find with talent yeah just recruit them all and say, because they'll all kind of fall in love with him and that's why the, and this is where i'm going to drop the original casting and i've only just thought about why it would be better the original choice for bill was warren Beatty. Now, Warren Beatty is one of the most legendary like Hollywood womanizers of all time, as well as a fine actor and director. Now, the whole point of Bill is if he's going to find these women who are damaged and often need a father figure because their parents have been killed, um, they're going to fall in love with him a little bit. And who better to sell that than Warren Beatty? And Clyde. I think that would have been better casting. Yeah, I would kind of agree, but I I can see why they did go for Carradine instead, just because of his B-list. The problem with Warren Beatty, is if you look at just very quickly, Chris, um, Warren Beatty, if you look at his filmography, there's three, four, five year gaps between films. And he's famous for just not making his mind up in that a director will approach him, talk to him about a project and he'll be, I don't know, maybe. And he does it for so long that eventually they've got to move on. And that's what happened here. Warren Beatty was on the hook for a very long time. And then eventually when it came to decision time, he just had to move on because Warren Beatty wasn't saying yes, no, or maybe. Um, I've always been excited by... He was also first choice for Nixon, the um, Oliver Stone film. And in both cases, I've never quite been able to articulate why. And I'm not a massive Warren Beatty fan, fan, but in both cases, I'm like, yeah, I wish it had been him. Just out of interest, just to sort of see what it would have been like. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would have wouldn't mind at least having a glimpse into what that bill would have been like with Warren Beatty. And I, and I get your, I get your point. It would have come across a bit more of like the ladies' man, the guy, more of the. It was just that I could see them falling in love with him. I mean, yeah, Warren Beatty. I remember I read um, uh, Barry Norman's autobiography, and he interviewed Warren Beatty. It's all about so the pickles. Yeah, it was all about the, the the eyes, and he would have these special lights of his own, just like show up his eyes, and it, and he just said you couldn't see. It was awful trying to like interview him, but there is something magical about Warren Beatty around people that David Carradine doesn't have. I can never quite see across these two films why they're that fucking fussed about him at all. I mean, to be honest, I don't have that problem because I think he's 
he's quite charming in it. But I think I think where, where you're right, and I think where but the alternative that Carradine offers is well, Warren Beatty is like yes, he's the charming ladies' man uh, who who is believable to make the women fall in love with him a little bit. David Carradine gives you the idea of like the kind of charming but dangerous guy. Like you believe David Carradine over Warren Beatty as like the legend that is Bill, as in like Bill is like this 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 like mystical, dangerous like sort of like gangster almost. You know, it's it, you know if he's he's called like Snake Charm. I think there's a level of of danger that Bob Beatty wouldn't have, you know what I mean? I can't imagine him, you know, particularly with the, like, the, being the masochistic stuff and being that kind of, going that dark. I can't see Warren Beatty selling that as much as Carradine does here. Well, he was in Bonnie and Clyde. Well, which I haven't seen, to be fair. That's but, fair anyway, the point is, I don't think he's bad casting, it's just that I don't always, um, I'm not always aware of like an original choice with Tarantino. Yeah. And I think because of his cachet, he normally gets who he wants. So most of his casting ever, I've gone, yeah, that's totally who you'd expect to play it. In this case, I'm not a big David Carradine fan, I have to say. Mainly because a bit like Michael Madsen, most of the stuff he's ever made is dreck. Whereas Warren Beatty has made some of the greatest films ever made. And I just, I'm aware of this original casting and I'm thinking, yeah, I'd rather have that. I know it would be different. It's a bit like Roger Moore against Sean Connery or something. Mm. Sean Connery's a killer in a way Roger Moore isn't. But in this one case, which is totally unlike my take on Bond, I think I'd rather have had the Roger Moore, if you like. I, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is probably Carradine is better suited to Tarantino. If you know, it fits more his... I can see. I don't imagine Tarantino on set with Carradine and Carradine wondering what the fuck they're filming. Yeah. With Warren Beatty, just maybe Warren would have been, what is this? Yeah, yeah what's going on? Maybe I have a comfort zone a little bit. But yeah, so we get Oren's backstory um, and she ends up head of the sort of biggest crime family. Be- before we move, move on for that, I've one thing I want to pick up also related to Bill. The guy who kills... Oren's father. Do you think that's Bill? Because I've always thought it's Bill. Because he looks so much like Carradine. I thought it was Boss Matsumoto. No, but he's Matsumoto. got. Yeah, but he has a hitman. He he's gets quite a lot of like. I've never thought about it. No, that's a good he, point. Actually, he, he kills him with Samurai. He's got like the the floppy hair. He kind of flicks back. He's kind of got the pointed features. Maybe, like, maybe. I just because there's a little bit too much like. He's not, he doesn't just look like your average hitman. He's never referenced again. I think, that and he doesn't I, look. And he doesn't look as eastern as everything around him. Yes. So I just think. I think that. I think that's a subtle hint. That's Bill. I've never thought Maybe. about it. I will next time. I really will. So I can't answer it because I've literally yeah. never thought about it, and it doesn't resonate so much that I go, "Oh Christ, you're right." I mean, but, be funny enough, just enough that I need to watch it again. I mean, funny enough. I mean, I thought that when when it came out initially, and what made me think of it was the bit where you see like the hand on top of the, his sword, and you saw you saw a ring. Of, like, and that's a skull. the way. That's the way he handles his sword later. And yeah, well, yeah, there's like oh, yeah. actually earlier. Yeah, earlier. And I know. Uh, and I always yeah. thought, oh my god, that's the same ring. So I watched it again uh, the recent viewings, and I thought. Um, actually, no, it's not the same ring at all. But my, I still think it probably is because it, it just. But looks... you don't necessarily wear the same ring twenty years on, no, do you? No, you I'm might but... still be fond of wearing a ring there. <laughs> yeah, true. But like, 
it's it's just that. Are that's... you still enjoying the same rings you were twenty years ago, Chris? <laughs> I don't have any rings. <laughs> okay. Right. So yeah, sadly. Moving on. You've got to experiment, Chris. <laughs> Well, those kind yeah. of rings. What kind of rings you're talking about? Well, you know, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Are you? Why? Why not those kind of rings then? I just didn't think men wore them. That's all. Really? <laughs> We're a bit brutal when you kind of. <laughs> okay, so um, we get the backstory here, which ends with a beheading um, one of the main guys, doesn't it? Yeah. And I love that. I it. Again, I think it's Lucy Liu at the whole. I don't. I didn't think she had this in her. It, it's, I think she set. She she nailed the whole. Like as soon as she beheads him, she does the kind of like strict. Wait, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say something. I'm going to and then I'm going to act like the real, like the really kind of reasonable manager, the really reasonable boss. Like, look, come on, you can approach me. Come on, it's fine. But if you say this. I'm going to put a chip in head. Yeah. And again, there's nobody for like capturing faces. I keep I keep trying to avoid saying shooting faces, um, like Quentin Tarantino, because I'd never ever noticed with Lucy Liu before what an unusual beauty she is, because she's Eastern features, but she's full of freckles. Yeah. Which is such an unusual look, and she's doing this sweet. You can come and talk to me anytime you like, and then she's like, I collect your fucking head. Yeah, <laughs> just a bit of, if you do this, yeah. Uh, yeah, the price you pay for raising my Chinese or American heritage as a in, a, in a negative yeah. way is I collect your fucking head. And then she <laughs> basically, sh- and then she shouts at them. She's basically yeah. like, like, if anyone of you other motherfuckers got anything else to say, now's the fucking, fucking time. time. They're, they're like, let's get this shit over with almost that kind of thing. Like, nope, fuck that. No, no, she's a total badass. I have never seen Julie Dreyfus in anything as well. Her sort of, I suppose, in in sort of classical terms, you'd almost say like a handmaiden. Yeah, is she, Julie yeah, Dreyfus. So it's more like a sort of support role. again a very very unusual beauty because she's largely Western figures, but uh, features, but there's a hint of Eastern in it. Mm, she's kind of like Japanese or, um, or French or European as well, isn't she? I think she's kind of she's more known for her work sort of in Europe um, or certainly um, in Asia as well than she is like over here, for example, in, yeah. in Britain. In fact, the only other thing I can see her in that I've seen is Inglorious Bastards. Mm, I was going to say. But, yeah, I just think the casting is... I mean, I've just compl- I haven't really... Co- I didn't mean to complain about David Carradine. I don't think he's bad casting. I just know there was another choice that I would have preferred. Yeah. But, again, this film is on point for how good this man is at casting. Yeah, I just... Yeah, I think, I think again, with, like, um, with Lucy Liu, it's just one of the things where you think, oh, why is she, why isn't she a bigger star? Like, why is she not, like, like... Well, it's, it's, it's a sort of thing at, at the moment, obviously, that is kind of, you know, being... Not playing the card, but also being, like, in the minority, for example. She's not going to get that much roles. I mean, for example, I kind of know her for Charlie's Angels. Um, and also in... Um, ah, what's it called? Elementary, the, um, the recent yeah. Sherlock Holmes remake. Um, that's been going on forever and ever and ever, and which I, is actually... That's really Element Beale as well. Mm, Element Beale, of course, that's it, definitely. Um, but it's just one thing, you know, you want to see more from her. Um, yeah. Just because, you know, she does have so much of her talent. A, a, lot, a lot of that is, um, you know, it's, it's like for any actor, it's down to, like, the, the, the choices you make and, the, and how exactly. well, like, might, might how well those films well. do. Yeah, I mean, like, sometimes it is, I mean... I mean, look, not that Lisa Lou's got anything to worry about. I'm sure she's successful like enough like, oh, yeah definitely <laughs> those she's looking at like a million dollars like why is there billions 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm a failure. Um, Chicago as well. Totally forgot she was in that. Just have a look at her. Cause she's nearly fifty as well. What's going on? She didn't look it. Good jeans. What else is she up to? I think she's just doing elementary, isn't she? Um, but yeah. But yeah, no, she's she's great in it. Country just, Panda. Just just like Uma Thurman is. Um, I think yeah, I think it's really strong. Oh, and also, I will probably talk about her a bit more. But I I I think um, Dal Hannah is really strong. Really, really like really good performance in this. Dan O'Hanna, Daryl Hannah was an obvious casting either. No. Not really. She's a little bit older than you'd have expected this role to be. Mm. I think I think actually thinking about it, there's definitely a note of jealousy because she goes into the hospital to kill yeah. the bride. And then she gets a call from Bill and she's like furious. And I do wonder if she was Bill's like previous favourite. Maybe. So maybe that's why they cast a little bit older. Well, I think they hint the fact that uh she's she's in a relationship with Bill, so there's always been that kind of rivalry. And that yeah. she's like she's kind of like taken over, but she's always had this like resentment of but we'll, we'll get more into it in the point next week because yeah. we see more of her. Yeah. Um, yeah. she's not really in it that much. But it's another clue we're in the movie movie universe in yeah. that she goes into like injector and she's got like an eye patch with a cross on it and stuff yeah. like that. It is very, very cartoonish. But yeah, so we've been introduced to um, Lucy Lou, so we know that Owen is the ne- well the next target in parentheses, you know, in her speech marks. In that we don't mean the next because she's actually in order first. So we get the bride flying to Japan. Yeah, with samurai, samurai, and with samurai swords in chat. And here's another thing we <laughs> we think. Uh, oh, do you get it past customs? Well, well, it, well. Here's his, his thing. I mean, everyone's kind of says that, but if you actually look, everyone else has got a samurai sword. All these sort yeah. of guys. Yeah, but so it's, it's the universe we're in. Exactly. So it just that that, yeah. that kind of tells you, like, yeah, in in this in this universe, if this it's is like fine. the norm. <laughs> like, everyone's yeah, got everyone a samurai sword. sword you know? right. So, yeah. um, well, knife. This is but a knife. She flies over to meet Sunny Chiba's character. <gasps> Sunny Chiba's great in this. Sunny Chiba. Oh, that's amazing. So cool. He's got such <laughs> a warm presence. I just I remember like an interview with Quentin Tarantino. He's like, "We've got Sonny Chiba." I was like, "Oh my god, this is a massive coup for this." He said that about everyone. I know, but he was just oh, I just his enthusiasm just kind if of. If I'd been key grip on me. that film, he would have been. We got Dave Bond. We got Dave Bond. He's so mouth. excited about everybody. He was the same about the Reza. He was, yeah, definitely. Um, I think having somebody. To this is bollocks, in my opinion. But there you go. <laughs> But yeah, no, he, d- he does have a real presence about him, doesn't he, I think? And I, I, I do love that kind of a scene where he goes into the bar and he's like, oh, konnichiwa, oh, American sort of thing. Yeah, she's um, and all the rest of it. She's there, for, she's there for a sword. Yes. I've got a fun fact about both Hattori Hanza and Sunny Chiba as well, so stay tuned. Okay, um, now Sunny Chiba is well known. We'll get into that. Becky can tell us about it in a bit. Uh, quite or, a nice or we can get uh, Christian Slater to tell us all about Sunny Chiba in, uh, in the opening of True Romance. Yeah. That's true, yes, I'll tell you what you need to know. So, Sonny, are you going to finish what you start ahead? <laughs> um, what an actor. Um, oh. <laughs> Paul Christian Slater. Paul Christian Slater. Yeah, I feel really sorry for him. <laughs> what a hard life that man's Stick had. Stick to Jack Nicholson impersonations. But no, it's, seriously, if, seriously, listeners, if you have a team in March, it's agent. hilarious. He got, he got to do whatever he wanted, be like a teen heartthrob for years, Act like an absolute piss pot in every film he did. You know, I Cuff, think Cuffs yeah. is still great, um, though. Yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> uh, obviously oh, yeah, no, that's, that's the highlight. 
I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's not bad in everything. And the thing is, right, I quite enjoyed Ch- um, Ch- uh, Churchill the Hollywood years. He was quite funny oh. in that. The the more comedic he goes, the better he is. So and I can to- I can totally buy. He's probably all right in Archer, but he was and Archer. Yeah, he's actually hilarious. Oh, any time he's even half serious, he's terrible. But yeah, um, she has to talk. Bit. She basically implies Sunny. What's Sunny Chiba's character called? It's Hattori Hanzo, isn't it? Yes. He makes the swords, and he hasn't made one for years. He's the greatest sword maker in the world. Basically, yeah, he's having to come that. out of retirement. Um, so. And he hasn't, and he won't make weapons of death anymore because it's kind of hinted, Bill. He, he writes, he writes Bill really well on a, on a window, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in in yeah. dust, in the depth. Yeah, I, I just, I just love the whole, I just love the whole scene where she's like looking at the swords, just like almost like this kind of like really sort of mystical kind of. I like baseball. Yeah. <laughs> I like baseball. <laughs> I love uh, the way him and his sort of aide talk to each other as well. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. he's always like shouting, I'll oh, do this, do that. And he's always like, oh, watching my yeah, program. He's really, he's really, he's really, very good, very good. And he goes, ooh. Um, so, yeah. That makes me, that's so funny. Oh, he, takes a, he takes a month to create this sword. She basically sleeps in the attic. And then he presents it to her. In, and in the she's been and then it's one ticket to Okinawa, please. But all of a sudden, I, I like it at the beginning where it's all like all of a sudden she goes from not being fluent to being very fluent in Japanese. Obviously, they they do know each other, but I just think that's quite funny. Ah. Yeah, and then it's well, like one well, she, to well she, does, she is fluent. She's just playing like she isn't at first. I don't know. I know, um, but I just think it's funny. There's um, um, yeah, the, the music that's played over the bit where she's getting the sword. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just realised that sounded like an innuendo there. I, I do apologise. <laughs> after, after she's receiving a length. <laughs> oh, she's being poked. Really? <laughs> when the uh, hurry out. Tell us more, Becca. What happens? Uh, it's the flower of carnage, isn't it? It is. It's, now, yeah. that is from Lady Snowblood. Mm-hmm. Very iconic No. Um, I, I, prob- I thought he, he heard that in, a, in a, like a, a Thai restaurant. He thought, what's that? I need to know what that is. Cause it sounds like a very oriental but rest- western sort It of- does sound like something you'd get in a very, very bad restaurant. Yeah. But um, the thing Actually, with it's very iconic. films is every now and again, particularly when he makes something very distinctive, it starts off a process of like trying to popularise that genre. So you got a little bit of it around black exploitation that suddenly people were checking out like Foxy Brown and Coffee and stuff like that and across 110th Street and so on. Um, it happened last, notably, with um, Grindhouse. Suddenly, mm-hmm. really shitty Grindhouse films were coming back. Um, most of the stuff that is sort of popularised on the back of a Tarantino film isn't very good. I will say Lady Snowblood is really, really good. It's dated. It's dated, but it's really good. And when you see Lucy Liu sort of in the sort of uh, sort of snowy garden at the very end of the film, the iconography of that is taken directly from Lady Snowblood. Yeah, it's a, it's a real kind of visual tribute to that, really, isn't it? So, Which I'm makes sense because she's getting ready to go and take on effectively Lady Snowblood, Lucy mm, Liu. Essentially. Yeah. So then she flies to Okinawa. Uh, when she goes to the airport, there's red apple cigarettes being advertised as well. Yes. So not, so only it, not only is it his movie universe, but it's also like a universe where cigarette advertising is okay. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that anymore. No, you don't at all. Because um, it's kind of fake brand that nobody's going to see. And you see her heading for the House of Blue Leaves to the Green Hornet soundtrack. Yeah, that's a bit <laughs> random. 
perfect. Yeah, though. it just adds a little bit of um, jointiness to it. But it looks like it as well because they're all dressed like Kato. Yeah, yeah, so they have the Kato mask. Don't they? I mean, uh, he even, she even name checks it. So yeah, um, and it's you know they keep calling the guy Charlie Brown. You think that's the same era? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's a similar sort of age, isn't it? And uh, then Battle Without Honourable Humanity, which is the track that plays over her heading to the House of Blue Leads, yeah. which I hope will pay over the trailer to this, but the lack of it on YouTube tells me it might end up being blocked, so I may end up having to use something else. But this was um, featured I think, in... I think a, it's um, Tomoyasu Hote, isn't it? Because so, he's like a famous Japanese sort of, you know, musician um, and, and guitarist as well. Tomoyasu Hotel. Um, <laughs> it was featured in a film called New Battles Without Honour or Humanity. There's different versions of it on there. But again, it's quite... I've heard it before football matches and stuff like that. They'll play it's it when epic, the teams come out. Anytime you have like an epic that. battle, it's... But what I'm saying is... It's, in it's the like a countdown, isn't it? It is, it would, yeah. It's in it the popular psyche been. now, definitely. It would not have been in the culture at all without this film. No. no it's just amazing. Cause it's, it's a big cultural... Sorry to talk over you again, Chris. It's a big cultural get. Just Sorry. Because, I mean, I've... I've, um, I've seen him live um, when he, he came to England too. I think it was a Hyper Japan event. Um, and because you kind of rarely was. Well, now, in the last 10 years, kind of more and more of these uh, Japanese acts, um, especially like J pop and J rock, sort of come into the UK. Um, so it was a real coup to be able to kind of see him over here in this country. Um, he's, he's an absolute legend. I mean, if you're into Japanese music, chances are you're a fan of Tomiyasu Hote. Um, to being an amazing guitarist and, and musician generally. But anyway, I just wanted to rave about him. But there we go, I'm done now. Yeah, well, no, I was just going to say that, like, the it was almost like um, it was cultural, culturally significant, like, straight away. It was like a bang on, like, it was just like the coolest thing. Uh, yeah. And one of the things I remember watching it about this, um, watching it now, was just how cool it still sounds. Like, yeah. when, as soon as it hits, it's just like. It will not take. It's just like that. That is really fucking stylish and really I mean, cool. Along with something like, with the exception of possibly, I guess stuck in the middle with you. But that is purely, and yeah. I'm not a fan. But that was Michael Madsen timing that. Yeah. Possibly Street Life on Jackie Brown, where they time her walk into the mall so perfectly. Mm. I don't think he's ever edited the music more perfectly. With the exception of a shot coming up, because the five, six, seven, eights is one of the best steady cam shots I've ever seen. That's amazing. If, uh, if you could check out their music as well, love it. They're, yeah, well, they're, they're they're a bit like you know, like one. They're very kind che- of... They're a little bit cheesy, but I don't mean that in a negative way necessarily. A little bit cheesy. They're they're playing on the sort of like camp and kitchen. It's all like kind of like 50s, 60s kind of music, but through Japanese. Depop prism. Well, he was at an airport. Um, he told he told the story on one of the special features to one of the films in one of the versions I've seen, and I didn't find it this time, so it's clearly not on the Blu-ray version. But he um, he was at an airport, um, and he had a tiny bit of time. He'd gone through all the sort of check-in and stuff, so and he was in like a bookshop, I think, and he was killing time until his his flight was called. Um, and he was looking around, and this track, Woohoo, started playing. And he went up to the counter, and, he, and his flight was called, and he said, what's this song? And they started saying, well, we don't know, it's just some disc we've got. And he's like, no, what is this song? And they started, they got out like the disc, the box to the disc, and they're looking at it, and they're like, I don't know. He said, can I have the disc? He said, I'll buy you, I'll buy the disc from you. And they were quite reticent, because they didn't own the store, whoever it no. was. And eventually he bought the disc and just said, I've got to go now. Gave him a ton of money and took the disc. And this song ended up in the film. That's an amazing story. 
Yeah. Now, the, 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 the person we probably haven't mentioned yet, we have been introduced to her, is... Um, go, go. Go, go, Yabari. Go, go. Yeah, I forgot now, to mention her in the credits. Now, go, go, Yabari is played by Chiaki Kuriyama. I'm, I am looking that up. I don't know how if that's how you pronounce it at all, so apologies if I'm wrong with that. Uh, I'd already seen her in a film called Battle Royale. Classic, yeah. absolutely classic. As had Quentin Tarantino, she is cast entirely because he loved that film. Yeah. Now, ba- Battle Royale is a jet black version of kind of something like The Hunger Games. But The Hunger Games, they all look like they've been dressed by like Vivian Westwood or something. <laughs> Not in Battle Royale, they're just literally kids Battle, from school. Battle Royale, they are kids from school dumped on an island to kill each other. It's jet fucking black as a film. But she's a character in that. She's a much, much uh, kinder, nicer, softer character in that. But she's been cast in this film on the basis of that film. And again, check out Lady Snowblood. Do check out Battle Royale. It's terrific. Only the first one. Also, one of the male leads in Battle Royale as well was also in the Death Note live-action movies. So that's another kind of tenuous link. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this this sort of type of cinema, but that film was terrific. I saw that at the Birmingham Mac years ago when it was new. Really, uh-huh. really, really great film. Um, I recommend reading the manga as well. Is that one of the sequels? No, it's the manga, so it's the book of the film. Oh, right, okay, fair enough. No, no, so, I, I, I don't know. I haven't read any of those at all. But um, she's basically kind of a henchwoman, if you like. And again people always talk about Tarantino doing like Star Trek or Bond. Well, what is this if not a Bond hench person? It is probably yeah. typical Bond <laughs> Yeah. Uh, she's really brutal. You know, this guy basically is attracted to her so she disembowels him. Oh. So she's meant to be like a schoolgirl. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a little yeah. bit creepy but then again the Japanese kind of like the schoolgirl lot, don't they? So. Yeah. It's a bit, yeah, again that's something that's quite seedy and quite... That and tentacles, but yeah, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> that and tentacle porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, my research has been interesting. <laughs> School tentacle porn, well, hentai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh god. So yeah, we head to the house of the blue leaves. Now the thing with this film is that um, one of the reasons it became two films was it was becoming unwieldy in and of itself. But another reason was. It was going wildly over because the whole shoot was supposed to be a certain number of weeks. I'm not quite sure what it was. But The House of the Blue Leaves was both more expensive and a longer shoot than the entirety of Pulp Fiction. He spent eight weeks doing just The House of the Blue Leaves because as he got into it, he just thought of more and more and more. And I think it shows. I think it shows that there's a guy just bursting with creativity here. There's a bit in the trailer where she gets her sword ready. And the guys around are all like genuflect. They all kind of like lean back and they do it so perfectly in time. And that that's a filmmaker at the absolute peak of his powers. Yeah, you kind of remember it. I sort of, they all kind of like in sync with one another, like the, yeah. all the blades, yeah. Um, and again, he's timed it perfectly yeah. to battle without honour of humanity in the trailer. But it, 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 again, it's kind of like channeling the uh, game of death as well, because obviously with the way that Uma Thurman's dressed with like Bruce Lee, but also you've got, got, you got the levels. So, so first you got like the first set of henchmen, then you got Gogo, uh, then you then, then you have then the, the cr- all of crazy them, 88. and then the boss. Yeah, yeah. and then well, that, and then you got like the head of Crazy Eight Eight, and then and then you have you know Oren. Um, okay, we, we we need to make a quick point about Game of Death because we're talking about other films you might choose to go and see, 
Um, certainly back when I was a teenager, and I'd imagine now you could go and buy like a box set of Bruce Lee films, and they would typically not have Enter the Dragon in it, which was like his best known Western, well, his Western film, the only one he did, but the film he's best known for. But it had like his original, like uh, Golden Harvest films as well. And uh, typically, I think it would have like The Big Boss, uh, Way of the Dragon, uh, Game of Death, Game of Death 2, and another one, I forget what the other one is. He died during Game of Death. It probably would have been like his magnum opus. He had a lot of plans for these films. As it is, the film is best remembered for what he's wearing, which is kind of the bride's outfit. This kind of... It's the opposite of... It's the opposite of... With uh, lemon piping, it, though. It's, it's, that's exactly what I was thinking of. It's the opposite of Russian shits in black suits with lemon piping. It's the yeah. twisted shit it's, it's in lemon suits with black that, piping. Um, so, yeah, game, game of Death, you might go and look it up on the basis that it's iconic, so perhaps it's like Bruce Lee's best film or something. It isn't. It wasn't finished. His best Eastern film, in my opinion, is Way of the Dragon because it's kind of funny. Mm, it's well. most iconic. And he fights um, uh, Chuck Norris at the Coliseum in Rome. It's really good. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, uh, well, Enter the Dragons. Oh, it's okay. Enter the Dragon's kind of iconic because you got him fighting in amongst all those mirrors with like mm. the scratches across his chest and stuff. Yeah. Um, Game of Death is nothing special, but it is because it's unfinished. Game of Death 2 is even worse because they're trying to get, get by on even scanter footage. But obviously the iconography survives through to this film. But you've got the Steadicam shot when she arrives. She arrives and you take a tour of the House of the Blue Leaves to have a look at it. She's in a bathroom, started to change. We do a tour of the whole thing. We go back to her and she's finished changing. So you get the lay of the land as well. It's not just like an artistic itch scratching. It is. Here is the lay of what we're about to do. Yeah, they're setting the scene. and he's, um, don't, we, don't she spy on her and then like, go, go, goes and investigates? get that bit was that a bit before yes yeah and then and then she's while changing she sees um sophie fatale comes yeah, in sophie... and she hears her ringtone but she's got the same ringtone five years later which is kind of possible in that <laughs> yeah, era, I guess. Doesn't one of the things that did bug me was i thought is it a bit unnecessary to have sophie fatale at the church it just seems a bit of a stretch it's like do we do we need that really you don't need the character actor, actually, no. but um, it just seems like actually I don't actually remember seeing her in the thing when they walk in. You know, they just like just seems a bit pointless. It also kind of undermines this kind of like hit crew he's got because mm. I tend to think well, you send four or five, depending on who you're killing, in to do this killing, and they're sort of in and out. Would you have this sort of team of like hench people and stuff, and almost like a secretary because yeah. that's what she is. Um, she's effectively kind of Bill's and um, Cottonmouth's secretary, but you know she's kind of glamorous. I kind of, I'm, I, you know, I kind of think the woman's kind of interesting uh, as a look and sort of screen presence. I think what sells it before when she's like interpreting for Owen, how she's like kind of smiling, how she's like saying like threatening words, just like um, mm. that's like going back a bit to what we talk about. But yeah, I mean here she's 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 the catalyst to get things going because yeah. obviously. She hears that ringtone, then grabs her and takes her out into the centre mm. of the floor. Um, the band leg it and all the rest of it, and she's basic and and the people dancing. And she um, takes her arm off. And she takes her arm off. And actually, <laughs> at this point, as cartoonish as it is, I don't think I'd seen. A, I don't think I'd seen a more violent film big screen. Yeah. Um, at this point, 
I've seen more since. I mean, it's not as hard hitting mm-hmm. as something. It's quite like, grim, isn't it? Well, you think the following year you had the Passion of the Christ, which was way more like hard hitting and like excruciatingly violent. It like it almost like hurt to watch. This had a much much more cartoonish quality. But I so just you got the black and white moments as well. That was to get it through the censors. Japanese version doesn't have that. Exactly. Yeah. To, yeah. To get it to no. I must admit that. The, the bit, fact that it's black and white does bug this shit out of me. I don't like it. It's, it's a bit random. It's not. It, it's not. It's not an artistic choice. It's a sense of choice. Yeah. It would have been. It would have been an NC17 if they'd left it color. But if, like, let's just say, if Tarantino, let's just let's just take the censorship out of it. Let's just say if Tarantino sort of thought, no, I think I think I think it's kind of cool. How it goes black and white. Um, and it's kind of like it was his choice to do it. Would we like it much? I think he just about gets away with it, but I think it's the fact that I know. I know, yeah. Yeah, that's it, the problem. I know. Yeah, I know. I know it's just purely there just for censorship, and the fact that hasn't it's not been in color, especially now the censorship is. Kind of, we think would be ease up on it now. If it was released today, I don't think it would be in black and white. It, it was color in the Japanese version. Yeah. Um, and you can get the whole bloody affair, like an an edited version of the whole thing over there, and it's color. Yeah. Um, so I don't like it. It goes black and white when she rips the eye out, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Which I love, actually. As a stylistic touch, I love it. Just the way she snatches it. It's actually the shape she forms with her hand as she pulls it out. Uma Thurman's really, really, really good in this film. Yeah, re- it'll mm-hmm. come back again later on. Um, next week. Yeah, yeah, next week. Yeah, we'll see it again. <laughs> um, yeah, the only thing I will say about this fight, which is just really, apart from the fact that it's black and white, it does go a little bit Beach Boys. Like like Roger Moore like surfing with the style of Beach Beach Boys. What you, mean, you, what you mean she was at Pinewood the whole time? No, <laughs> you know when she's like break dancing. Beach Boys, it's you know, I just feel like oh okay, come on, you're having a laugh here. I I've always enjoyed it for the simple reason that we'll talk about it next week, and uh, we're going to be a bit careful because I don't want to get into all the Me Too stuff. Not here. I'm not saying we'll never talk about it, but not here. But obviously next week there is a talk about a certain car crash that Quentin Tarantino let happen that Uma Thurman got injured in. But the upside, if there is an upside to this sort of thing, is you've got actors doing real things for real. She did have a stunt double. The stunt double was um, Zoe Bell, who we'll see uh, in two weeks' time in Death Proof. Um, who's a terrible actress, but um, she's a brilliant stunt woman. So brilliant stunt woman, and, and has a passing resemblance to Uma Thurman, certainly in build and hair. So she did a lot of the stunt doubles, but the bit where Uma Thurman like leaps backwards onto a table, she did. That's so, so cool. It, she did it with wires, but she did it. And the problem is because people know Zoe Bell was there. I think Uma Thurman's always been a little bit. People don't know which bits I did myself, and she did a lot of it herself. Now, some of that may be a relatively indie um, director insensibility forcing it in a way that a major studio wouldn't have allowed. Um, but an awful lot of this is Uma Thurman do- and a lot of the other actors here doing it for real. I think it's all the better for it. I really do. There, there's not a lot of them trying to cover their faces or poor digital double face replacement yeah. or anything like that. It, it feels authentic. You can feel the wire work in it. There's a little bit where she goes from one table to another and she's clearly lifted and dropped. But it's very, very impressive, all of it. And Tarantino, he had a choreographer, but he ended up doing it himself. He just ended up just going, <clears throat> I can figure this out myself. Which is, which is like... You know, a sign of like a really talented dude. Because 
Yeah, but at the time, we had, like, this came off just after, as you mentioned before, The Matrix Reloaded. And there was comparisons to how Tarantino basically embarrassed them because there was, like, a, a scene where Keanu Reeves is fighting off, like, a bunch of, like, a, like an army of Agent Smiths, like, similar and to, And it like, looks terrible. And it's just all done, like, on, on, like, CGI. It's all just, like, digitally done. And it just looks really crap. Where here, yeah, it's it actually all done for real, and it looks authentic, and it looks great. Uh, and it so really shows, like, really, really, there, there is a certain joy and, um, you know, a spectacle to see. Well, you know, you know I'm a CG defender, generally speaking, yeah. because I just think it's that business of, you know, kids today. I think there's an element <laughs> of that we, we just look at something and something 20 years ago has to be better by definition. That's bollocks. There's yeah. plenty of good CG you'll never notice, and it's just a tool. The problem <laughs> does just... become, though... The, the problem does become, though, that you look at something like this and they had to figure out what every last person in that room was doing in synchronization with every other person in that room. Whereas with The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, you literally just needed to block the shot and then paint the rest in. Yeah. Yeah, pr pretty much. And I think, you know, in any walks of life, whether it be making films or doing anything... You know, the harder you work and more effort you put in, it really does pay. I think that's broadly true. I think that, that I think the end result of CG doesn't necessarily look any worse. I think in many ways it looks a lot better. Yeah. I think with something like Dunkirk, it would have given it more scale. I, I am a defender of it because it's just a tool, and I think it's very easy to knee jerk and just go, "Oh, bloody CG." I mean, like, yeah. Right? I mean, to, to, but, to, to but back your point, there is no doubt. There is no doubt that. The Thing is a much more inventive film because they had to fucking figure it out. Yeah, a bit like you know. But to, to back your point though, you know, it, the, you know, you could you argue the fact that well, yeah, it's all CGI, but then you could just say the the Watsi just did a shit job of it. Like if they actually made a bit more effort or or thought it through more, it wouldn't have looked as crap as it did. The problem with the Wachowskis is the same as George Lucas. They, 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 they push the envelope further than it's ready to go. Mm. That's all. I mean, is CG better now because of them? Maybe, because possibly people looked at that and went, yep, no, we can do that a bit better. There could be like a touch of laziness about it. Thought, oh, well, this, this is new. This will do. You know, rather, yeah. rather than actually sort of like trying to make it the best possible it can be, Where, you know, whether that be use practical effects or just maybe just work on the effect on the digital stuff more, you know. I mean, it's one of the few things the Amazing Spider-Man films got better than the the Sam Raimi version in the, um, and there isn't much because they're not very good. The Amazing Spider-Man films will cover them either this year or next, but um, there was a practicality to a lot of the Spider-Man stuff that wasn't there in the Sam Raimi stuff, yeah. and certainly in the first and third film, bizarrely more than the second one. There was no weight to Spider-Man. He was kind of like rubbery and kind of like springing around and it didn't look right. And your brain just immediately goes effect and it immediately <coughs> takes all the stakes out of it. Yeah, you, you, know? you, you instantly know it's not real. I mean, like, you, you know it's not real because you're watching a film, but your brain instantly knows it. I can't take it seriously. But, I mean, by and large, if you've got enough money and enough time now, you can get past that. But it's always money and or time. And as the further we go back in time, that has more of an effect because you need more money and more time to get it right than you need now. Here, I don't know that there's any CG in this film. There's probably some painting out the wires, I'd have thought. 
Yeah, maybe it's not obvious at all. Maybe a few extra blood splashes or something, but you it's know. a 30, it's a thirty million dollar film. But we've got a a, a fight sequence that. Uh, it's not worth saying much about really in that the go-go bit is a character beat that she has to kill her henchwoman. And it is kind of almost like that. Is that all you got? But also the bride's resilient because she does get hurt. She takes that fucking like chain ball thing right in the chest. Oh, and that will have cut her quite badly. Uh, but then the next, you know, the crazy 88 and there aren't 88 of them that gets referenced next week. Um, but she kills them inventively. But it is it is just an action sequence that they don't feel like there's hugely stages to the fight, except when they do go off into that other room with the blue background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just about I mean, levels of difficulty. I mean, like you know, it's you, you mm. beat, beat a bunch of like lackeys, okay, you know, and they're really challenged, and you beat like someone who's quite difficult to fight one on one. Now you're fighting like load of people. Absolutely, it's a filmmaker that's been paying attention though, because the very first shot you see of the Crazy Eighty Eight is uh, Johnny Mo, Gordon Liu. Yeah. We're going to see next. We're going to see again next week. Gordon he, Liu. Yeah, he's the leader. He's really cool. Um, but he walks in, and the camera kind of like goes right into his eyes, then pans out, whips out, as and he screams, and that is so like Golden Harvest. It's untrue. That that is Eastern sim- cinema in it one is literally shot. Just like yeah, exactly. That encapsulates it. Right there and then, this is you know him paying homage to to that genre. Absolutely, but it's a great sequence. Obviously, she ends up killing most of them, and then she's just left with Oren. Yeah, so she's like she basically said, "Those with your limbs, leave them here." Uh, she's kind of like imagine her like sort of go go back down like one with a big like sort of carrier bag, just putting all these like extra limbs. In. It's, it's very um, it's very kind of epic form when you yeah. think of something like um, the Iliad or something. They they sack a city. Uh, and whatever you get is yours, and it, and it's like the limbs—they're now mine. I took them in battle. Yeah, that—that's the thinking there. But she ends up in this little garden with um, Oren, which looks like inside a snow globe, which I've said before. Mm. This deliberately looks stylized. The snow doesn't look real, and I'm convinced it's not meant to. No, but it, it and, looks so pretty, though, doesn't it? And you've got that little water butt moving on like a perfect rhythm, mm. and all the sound drops out. I think it's lovely. That's always like a little metronome to the, to the scene, isn't it, really? Mm. I think so. And you also, you've got, you got the stuff with Owen kind of like uh, mm. taking the piss out of her, like silly Caucasian girls like to play with samurai swords. Uh, yeah. And kind of like, oh, you've served enough strength now, you know. Th- th- yeah, you we also get a hint at her name as well, which we don't get till next yeah. week. Silly rabbit tricks are for kids. Now, <laughs> here's, here's another one of my... Um, criticisms to say about the Kill Bill. I don't know if to save it for now or, or to it. save it to What is the whole point of keeping a name a secret? I don't think there is a point. I've always often wondered about that, apart from the funny bit where you get a revealing a name in a schoolgirl outfit amongst children in the next one, which is funny. Um, I almost feel like with part two, it's almost to like demystify her. I think, yeah, I think it's just to give her a bit of because she does, sequel, most of because she doesn't have a cool name. Beatrix Kiddo to reveal it is not a cool name. No, it builds it up as though it's going to be something a bit more cool sounding. It, it just well, something, got, that's, something that's quite has a lot of meaning a, loaded onto she's it. She's got a vaguely silly name because because like Bill refers refers to as Kiddo. You just think, well, that's just like okay, yeah, yeah, and it's just like oh, okay. Or is it like a French name? I don't know. It could be Beatrice. Yeah. You know. And look. I did the E E U X. If you don't, if you just don't want to name her, well, that's fine. But you don't have to sort of 
dance around it and make a point out of it. You can just sort of I like, wish they hadn't. Yeah, she yeah. should have been the bride forever. Yeah, should just like sort of just not the dialogue in the film, the story of the film should have just not like by chance just not mention mention her name. Everyone just and then she's the it. bride. Yeah, you know, like driver or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's not a big deal, but it was a whole lot of fucking nothing in the end. At the end of the day, yeah, it's like oh. But she kills um, Cotton Mouth, which is kind of cool. It's kind of a bit of an anticlimax after, but I do like. Um, it's a little bit more emotional, though, isn't it? A little bit more because they kind of have a. She she reprimands her, then she kind of like says, "Actually, no, I take it." What's back really Japanese is her footwear. Yeah. Oh, it is footwear. The... It's basically a cross between. A kind of slipper and a flip flop. I don't know. I, I don't know. I can always get they will have a name, and I don't know what it is. I was like, get her, but I don't okay. know. I'm gonna have to look this up. But she obviously know. basically ends up kind of lopping. Well, the top well, she's, well she's got she's got the sword. She's got the kimono as well. Um, yeah, very Lady Snowblood. Even the way she holds a sword across over the top of her—that's oh, totally Lady Snowblood. Yeah, Tarantino I think, I think would, know, would have shown a bit of that on set. He would have just said, that's what I'm looking for. And then, of course, uh, she takes Sophie to the hospital, having chopped off some more limbs. Ugh. And you get a flashback to her saying, basically, I'm going to ask you a load of questions and you'll lose a limb for everyone you refuse to answer or lie over. Um, and then you see Bill in the hospital saying to her, does she know her daughter's still alive? And I nearly cried at that the first time. I don't know why. But I nearly did. It was like, oh, fuck. And I ended up having to wait three months longer than expected for a part two I didn't enjoy. Yeah, I I think it, it is one of those things because it is a completely different film. So, you know, you walk out of this one thinking you want you want exactly like the next version of that. I knew he would slow it down a touch. Yeah. He had to stylistically, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't even have that eastern feel to it, does it? No, it's more of a western, isn't it? Way more kind of. I mean, it has eastern feels, but it, you know, it is. I, I, I characterize this as more east and west. This is eastern. Next one's west. More, more, more so to speak. Yeah, he did. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the bit about the, the fact that he, she got the sword made to avenge on Bill would suggest that she uses the sword on Bill. That doesn't happen, yeah. which is a little bit like. Okay. <laughs> but in the original, um, I will say now, in the original script, which I read during the interminable wait for part two, mm. they originally meet on the beach and she's wearing her bridal outfit. Oh, that's fucking cool. It's just so much better than like poking him in the chest five fucking times. <laughs> which I was just like, honestly, at the time I was like, is that fucking it? <laughs> that, that, um,. But that script was like so huge, though, wasn't it? There was like loads of shit. They'd be like, Gogo had a like a twin, and then yeah. like they. It was, do you read that one? Or, yes, yeah, yes, I did. Yeah, I'd forgotten until you said that. Yeah, she, yes, as soon as and, you said and that, then yes, I did. There's like an action scene, like after she meets um, uh, oh. what's her name? Is it Cotton? I don't know which Copper, one you talk about. Copperhead, isn't it? No, not Owen. The uh, Veronica. Oh, Vanita. Yeah. Vanita's Copperhead. Green. Copperhead. Yeah, yeah. You've got um. Obviously, um, California Mountain Snake is Daryl Hannah's character. Yeah. Uh, L Driver. He totally changed that when he filmed it. And the reason he, we'll talk about it more next week, but I will just say, I'm not even going to say what. He had an idea for how he was going to shoot their fight. And then he saw a certain film and it yeah. changed his mind. And Chris knows what I'm on about. We'll talk yeah. about that next week. Mm. Um, I'll just quickly do my final thoughts on this film then. Um, I, 
I don't feel the characters taking me the way I wanted them to. And perhaps for a film that's meant to be in the movie-movie universe, that's entirely deliberate, that they're archetypes more than anything else. Despite the fact you see her in many different sets of garb in many different ways, a bit like an Indiana Jones, you can't imagine the bride without that Game of Death outfit. No. So the characters that now, years on, now I've seen it to death, don't take me in quite the same way. We're following on from a film that was actually quite emotional in its way. And we're two weeks away from a film that the characters really do take you from the very, very first scene. So it's still superior Tarantino from everything I've just, for everything I've just said, it's still one of his better efforts. It shows what an extraordinary talent he is. I mean, he, he, he suddenly threw in an action dimension that wasn't there before. Um, he stripped an awful lot of dialogue was stripped out of this film and it still worked. He was able to provide iconic scenes left and right. And he put together a soundtrack that while I don't love it as much as last week's, it throws together all these disparate elements and then gels as one thing, which takes incredible talent. We've seen so many films from different people where the scenes just don't go together, even when the soundtrack is all written by the same person and, and so on. So it's a very, very impressive piece of work. But I watch it remembering that I used to love it rather than actually loving it. Mm. And that renders it on rewatch now something of a disappointment. What about you guys? Uh, kind of slightly the reversal that I said uh, at the beginning of the show. It's uh, I kind of had a newfound appreciation for the film. Not that I didn't dislike it before, but I just kind of for me it just really worked um, a lot more. And it's just when you see the the skill involved and how well the characters um, make sense and are well drawn out. Uh, apart from the whole bullshit about the, the mystery about her name, because who gives a fuck? Um, yeah, you know, it, it's just really well crafted, and you think, actually, no, this I've really, really enjoyed my time with it. Really solid watch. I would kind of agree with you, Chris. Um, yeah, I remember sort of living this up upon release, um, and then obviously thirteen years later, um, still really enjoying it. I think having had that more appreciation for kind of where where the iconography is coming from, where some of the characters, as you mentioned, Dave, the archetypes are coming from. Um, I do think there is a little bit box ticking um, and all these kind of references, or we've got to have Sonny Chiba in, or we've got to have Lady Snowblood reference in. Um, but again, it's it's all about you know his his camaraderie. His homage. He's done all these different genres, and now he's doing the kind of the Asian, um, Eastern cinema, you know, which is fine. But no, I, I still think it works. Um, probably a little bit too long. Um, we are kind of. I, th I think this stage is probably peak Tarantino for me. Um, but no, I I do I, I sort of really enjoy it. It's, but yeah, there are moments during the you know during the um the massacre I just have to sort of look away. Um, and again, the black and white bits are a little bit, mm, not so much. Um, again, it's random. It just literally signposts, oh, these are in black and white to get around the sensors. Um, so there are some scenes that don't quite work for me, but I sort of love the cast. Um, and yeah, no, I, I still really enjoyed this film. And there we go. So um, I still feel like I'm not informed enough about this film, Dave. I don't know about you. I, 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 I'm kind, I feel like I'm groping in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> a joke for the Me Too movement. There you are. I was say, yeah, we mentioned Me and grouping. Mm. I feel like I feel like I'm groping around in the dark. Where, where when as what fun as that can be, <laughs> when the light suddenly comes on, you don't look very well informed. <laughs> He's feeling around for some extra knowledge. 
Um, I'm feeling yes, you're so I've got... around for the bulbous knowledge of truth. <laughs> Did you want to add any more thoughts about that, Dave? I, I was hoping for a firm shaft of facts. Not getting the sword. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah, I've got five fun facts. Um, That's a coincidence. You've always got five. That's amazing. I've stuck all to these, five. I don't all, quite know why. It's just... All these films have, like, five things about them that we need to know. This is it. So well, I thought I'd try and do as many as there were, but, you know, if it was like a, a ten film series, I'd do ten, but no. What, what, in other words, like, read, like, the entire IMDb trivia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, anyway, so fun fact number one, um, the anime sequences are courtesy of Production ID, um, known for cinematic adaptation of Pat Labor and also the series and movies of Psychopaths and Ghost in the Shell, amongst others. Um, obviously Ghost in the Shell is an absolute classic anime, if you haven't seen it, recommend you check it out and also the series as well um, lots of spin-off series made so it's really worth the investment and also well, Pat Labor is an absolute classic, so you know more and Psychopaths as well is probably one of the best or well, I kind of say adult anime, you know it's not kind of sexual or anything like that um, but I think it's got like 15 or 18 certificate, but it's well worth checking out it's kind of like um I don't think what it is. It's so futuristic. Um, what was that film with Tom Cruise where he could predict? Minority Report. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. Um, but better. Without, and anime, so it's cooler. Without Tom Cruise. But without Tom Cruise, yes. Yeah, so Less actually, running. So it's, it's better. And it's, well, it's actually quite a lot of running, but just generally better. But anyway, so highly yeah, recommend But not those. Tom Cruise running. That's the PS de resistance. Of <laughs> He's running away from his gay thoughts. Um, but anyway, <laughs> if you get... <laughs> So just to clarify, listeners, if Becca was hoping you'd miss that and remember I edit the show, she's just said that Tom Cruise runs a lot to run away from his gay thoughts. Actually, no, that's not my idea. That is actually Seth MacFarlane and Family Guy. You voiced it happily, though. Your <laughs> it's, it's a Family Guy. That, 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 that's approval. No. That's why okay. he's running. That's well, endorsement, that is. Becca has been collaborating with uh, Saf McFarlane to spread <laughs> gay about Tom Cruise That's slander and all who libraries. apparently runs to avoid a big firm cock right up his arsehole <laughs> Moving swiftly on um, if anybody you know if any of our listeners are anime fans and they can check out the work of production IG then... cock right up your arsehole <laughs> don't, don't write to us No I'd rather you didn't um, but yeah definitely check out the work of production IG because they are Probably one of, apart from obviously Ghibli, um, my all-time favorite anime house. I just like, we, we, we went from like talking about Japanese anime to Tom Cruise shafted. Big firm cock right up his arsehole. I think that's like the trajectory of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice cock <laughs> oh, Tom, Tom, Tom Cruise's ass. Not so conscious. Uh, uh, let's go into the trailer. That is going in the trailer, unfortunately. But yeah, that um, joke wasn't mine, sadly. But uh, number two, Sado got his name wrong earlier. Um, Shinichi, not whatever I called Just him. Just clarify, that number two isn't coming out of Tom Cruise's arsehole. No, it's not. <laughs> coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a mental image. And it, yes, fun fact number two. Sunny Shinichi Chiba also portrayed Gogo 13, essentially the Japanese James Bond. Duke Togo, a.k.a. Gogo 13. Yeah. It's like James Bond, but he shags more Japanese women. That's it. And does he have a samurai it, sword, or...? Maybe I haven't seen it in a while. Alright. It's, and it's actual actually Gogo Thirteen is the longest running manga, having started in nineteen sixty eight. That's a long film. I'd be tired. <laughs> That's another one. Um, I've seen some of the anime. I haven't read the manga of it though. 
Okay. But we, uh, we need to get hold of it, really. Um, fun fact number three. The Tokyo miniature sets uh, were left over from the then most recent Tokusatsu Godzilla film, um, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. I wrote this about a month ago and I can't read my writing, so you have to excuse me. Um, fun fact number four. Um, says, one-way ticket Okinawa. Okinawa Prefecture consists of 160 islands, stretching 400 kilometres north to south and 1,000 kilometres east to west, between the Pacific Ocean and East China Sea, also known as Ryukyu Islands. And in 1863, Commodore Matthew Perry arrived at Naha and started his expedition to Japan. Could he be any more in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> That's fun, folks. That's it, definitely. I, I, feel, a bit, I feel a bit embarrassed. Commodore like... Matthew Perry. That's Sorry. his name, Matthew. And obviously, something like, and, and, and unless you're doing it like at college or um, or um, or like a degree, for example, if you go to um, College of Africa and, and like Asia studies, um, you don't you don't tend to get taught about sort of like Japanese and Asian history. Obviously, apart from like if you do um, obviously Japan and America during World War Two, for example. Um, so it's something I've been doing sort of a little bit of reading about like over the last decade or so. And obviously Matthew Bright, I was like, oh, that's quite an easy name to remember because it makes you remind you of friends. And it's like, oh. So that made me laugh um, when I read about it. Um, but to be fair, all the listeners will remember from these facts is that Tom Cruise is, is running Tom Cruise from, runs a, away. from a big firm cock, like right up his arsehole. <laughs> uh. Oh my God, but seriously, no, if you're, listeners, if you're a fan of Family Guy as well, chances are you'll know about that already, so... And anyway, fun fact. And, and, and if you were, and if you're not, check out Jack Reach around. <laughs> <laughs> That's the porn version of it. Oh, Two films where he ignores Robert Rosamund Pike. He just gets down to business. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that Tom Cruise is a really good actor, but he can cast anyone next to him and he has zero chemistry with them forever. <laughs> Women-wise, anyway. And I'm not casting aspersions. I do believe he's probably straight, but like, he never has any on-screen ke- chemistry with any women. But he has really good chemistry with Simon Pegg. Read into that what you will. <laughs> he's not called Pegg by accident. What are we talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, I've got one last final fact, and I can okay. let you go. Thanks. <laughs> Me and Chris tied to chairs, going, "Just get the last fact done, bitch. Just get over the, get over the. This is torture." <laughs> okay. <laughs> Leave us in suspense, Becca. Tom Cruise got a big foam cock stuff right up his asshole. Be fair, Dave. That's you leaping yeah. on that mental image. That's they, nothing. They, I'm not leaping on anything. Tom they, Cruise cock. <laughs> They, they they say the, that's uh, that wasn't the thing that broke his ankle, but I believe that lot to be true. What he fell off a really big <laughs> cock. <laughs> he fell off Liam Neeson, didn't he? Or did he do a Ted Danson and fall off his chair? He was originally cast as Batman, and he fell off. He fell off Raz Al Ghul on the top of that mountain. Oh my god! It just gets worse and worse. Yeah. He didn't have a nice Batmarang to land on. <laughs> I have a go to make this Batmarang. <laughs> I, th- I think it's only fair that obviously we've got our own signature um, cocktail. So now we have the batmarang, so which is our own signature dessert. That's right. We'll, we'll make the we'll, we'll work out a recipe for that. It probably have we'll real be meringue, but in the okay, like... and, and funny enough, cocktails. What he what Tom Cruise calls it when someone buggers him up the Just to remind our listeners, if you don't hear from us again, Tom Cruise is notoriously litigious. 
So if you don't hear from us again, we read soon. Hopefully, I, I don't think he listens to this. I don't think we can count him amongst probably our does. many listeners. This is, we're probably a key part of auditing. <laughs> what, what part of the Scientology stuff? You probably oh. get you probably get Dianetics and do you expect us to talk? What are they nonsense? That's your view, Becca. We're quite respectful of other faiths. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I find they nonsense is the idea that he listens to this podcast. I don't believe that at all. Hey, strange things something. happen. He's got to do something he, when he he's follows about me to on Twitter, you know. Hey? He follows me on Twitter, you know. Well, his account does anyway. Does he now? Yeah. yeah. Oh, check you out. Well, yeah. next time, when this comes out, you can repost it with, here's a joke, Tom, about a big <laughs> fucking cock stuff right up your yep. ass <laughs> Which has become a bit of a catchphrase of mine tonight now. I'm quite worried. <laughs> it's, been, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it, Dave? It is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> I'll just say. You'd, you'd never believe he was five foot seven, put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> If he was in proportion, he'd be six foot nine. Anyway, what's this fifth fun fact? Back? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got, I've kind of got a four point five about Tom Cruise. Apparently, because of his height weight ratio, his BMI, he's considered obese. Fat but, bastard. But obviously, because you know he's quite physically fit, so he's clearly not obese. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm clearly weight ratio. His BMI is on the large side. He's, he's eight stone, but he's three foot seven. Yeah, I'm, I'm, cl- I'm clearly obese according to the B, uh, BMI. So. What that cin- that cinema in London? Yeah, BMI. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. The uh, BMI. But no, anyway. So fun fact number five: Hattori Hanzo is a real or was a real person. Um, is actually a famous swordsman of the Sengoku uh, Warring States period, who saved the life of um, Tokugawa Ieyasu, obviously um, shogun at the time, um, and helping him become the ruler of a unified Japan under, of course, Tokugawa shogun. And that is my five. Well, five point half. 5.5 fun facts. I was fascinated till fact two, but since then I've just been imagining, you know, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise running, away from, <laughs> running away from a very excited Liam Neeson. Literally, if you Google... <laughs> uh, that sounds like a Mission Impossible to me. Tom Cruise, Family Guy, it'll be there. It's not the my idea. Non-stop. Yes, <laughs> 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 I was about to say that. <laughs> I regret I rescind my comment. Anyway. You can find me until I'm sued by Tom Cruise. I think we all be sued by Tom Cruise. And Lee Neeson. At the Pasty Kid 1976 on Twitter. You can find me not being sued by Tom Cruise at Seven Trucks on Twitter. Because I'm going to get the blame because I said most. Yeah. <laughs> it was Dave, he was older. Some bigger boys did it. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, you can find us at on Twitter at Expect Us to Talk. Um, you can drop us an email if you like. Um, please. Don't be litigious. Um, uh, sorry, to <laughs> no, our email is expect us to talk at gmail.com. Um, we're also on YouTube at expect us to talk, and we're also on the Facebook expect us to talk, and also where else are we? iTunes. You can also find us on iTunes. If you type in do you expect us to talk, um, give us a following five star review as helps us to rank high in the ratings and attract more listeners. Thank you. Because we want more listeners, we want more people. Yeah, we do. Just not. Not, not ones that are Tom Cruise and the Willis we're, we're, we're kind of worried about falling educational standards, and we think we've got the cure. We do. Someday, well, so, well, we already cured uh, cancer, so we cured cancer before Christmas. We cured mental distress just after Christmas, and if you listen to us, we'll make you smarter. In the ass. Um... <laughs> yeah. Well, that's we'll that's give... for you guys to discern. I will have. We'll, we'll give you. We'll give you a nice firm. <laughs> 
uh, talking to. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Well. Uh, good night, folks. I guess. Right. Join us for Jack Reacher. <laughs> Becca, what's next? On that note, do you expect to talk of a return with Kill Bill Volume Two? <laughs>